Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next edition of the Austrian AV Club slash uh, Stefan's Super Duper Podcast. Is that the new name you're going with uh, these days, Stefan? Well, just slash, um, okay. because that's my intellectual approach. Hack and slash. Excellent. Um, airstrike. And uh, in interestingly, so I wanted to talk to you today about, uh, I guess... Uh, environmentalism, the philosophy of environmentalism, I guess, environmental, quote unquote, ethics, if those, you know, if those can exist, um, you know, natural things, and whatnot, because I think a little while ago, I guess you had discussed, um, there was this blog post entitled, um, what was it like 12 or six things that libertarians can't answer answered. I think it was up on one of the libertarianism.org website. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but go ahead and with then, the questions. Then, I don't want to, people yeah, want to yeah. see that. Sorry, man. Yeah, anyways, in any case, it had come up that uh, you, we were discussing sort of, um, you had discussed environmental issues, right? Because there's there's these problems around environmental issues that supposedly libertarianism or, you know, freedom can't solve. And uh, I think you did, ended up doing a whole post about it, a whole talk, and I got into some discussions, some fights, uh, you know, in the comments underneath. Uh, sort of wanting to know, well, you know, and essentially putting to these people, okay, well, what is environmentalism? Uh, you know, what do you believe nature to be? Um, how do how do humans fit into nature? And I think one of the, the fundamental points that I, I find with a lot of environmentalists is uh, this split between nature and human beings, right? Mm. Um, essentially, they, they say it, it's sort of one way or the other way, either if we're if we're acting in ways that they wish us to act, um, essentially we're in harmony with nature, or we are part of nature. And if we're acting in ways that we that they do not like us to act, you know, we're we're therefore we're not we're no longer part of nature. And and where do you fall on this in terms of being human beings being natural? <laughs> I think the idea of of nature having anything to do with harmony can only arise from people who've lived deep in the heart of condos their whole life. <laughs> I mean, seriously, yeah. I, you know, at, when I finished high school, I mean, I wanted to go to college, but I was dead broke and my family had no money. So I went to go and work. Uh, I worked a total of about 18 months in the bush, like way, like take a plane, uh, take a, like a, a, a seaplane or a plane that can land on a frozen lake and go live in a tent uh, throughout the winter. And that's real, like nature in your face, you know? Right. And the idea that nature can be harmonized with or has anything to do with harmony is, I mean, that's just people who've watched National Geographic specials from the <laughs> comfort of a very plush Ottoman couch. Yeah. Uh, nature is combat. Nature is domination. Uh, nature, I mean, there's obviously cooperation in nature as well. But, you know, we've evolved because we conquered everything that, that got in our way. Now, of course, nature uh, is, we can't survive without nature. We can't survive without photosynthesis. We can't survive without plants. We, I mean, I get all of that. Yeah. We, we need clean water. We need, we need reasonably clean air and so on. But just because we've driven nature out of cities, we can now afford to get sentimental. You know, it's like some guy who had a relationship with an abusive woman who was really hot. And then, like, <laughs> 10 years later, he's like, wow, she was yeah. really hot, you know, and miss, forgets all the abuse and just is all kinds of nostalgic for her. 
Well, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. People have nostalgia about, you know, like my family <laughs> fled Ireland and all nostalgia. Oh, the old sod, the old country. It's like, yeah, but there was nothing to eat. You know, so so yeah. I think that we get very sentimental about nature only because we've got a civilized distance away from it. So I think nature needs to be protected. We need to make sure there's cleanliness. But this idea that, you know, we're going to be at one and in harmony with nature. I mean, Lord, I mean, nature produced lovely things like the smallpox virus and and the Black Death yeah. and uh, and the Ice Age and, you know, asteroids raining well, and, down and on here's the planet. The thing. Yeah, but but even then, you know, I think um, to, to take that even a step further of what is nature, I mean, humans being natural, therefore, everything that humans do is natural, right? Everything, a city I'm, a city is uh, is is part it's of a beaver nature, dam. Right? It's a well, beaver exactly. dam. It's a, it's just a beaver dam right. with neon lights. That's all it is. Be yeah. Beavers alter and, their environment to make their own homes comfortable, and the same thing is is what human beings do. Yeah, and see, and and that's the thing I, I see fundamentally at the core of the of the environmental ethos or the environmental philosophy, a very anti-human, uh, sort of nihilistic. Um, uh, you know, uh, sort of a nihilistic strain, right? It's very, it's very misanthropic. You know, if uh, if if humans were truly to have zero impact, we would not exist, right? If, if a human being, well, that's the thing, right? I mean, if uh, every and as you're saying, you know, nature is fighting, nature is is uh, competing with each other. And what is funny about that too is I find, you know, when when you're talking about the dog eat dog world of capitalism. Um, you know, in nature, well, quote unquote, okay, in the in the non-human natural world, dogs do actually eat dogs. You know, <laughs> but but and this is what I mean. It's it's there's a I sense I sense a nihilism and a misanthropy at the core of environmentalism. That uh, well, I, you uh, know, I think anytime thought. you have a significant movement in human thought, you look for some previous, like some prior system that has just collapsed. Right. You know, like mm -hmm. there's nothing new. Uh, under sun and moon. And what happens is when you see the rise of environmentalism in the late 60s, you, fall, you saw the fall of organized religion at around the same time. Certainly up here is, you know, in Quebec, the Quiet Revolution, uh, the, the dominance of the church in Western society was under great challenge uh, from the relativists, the collectivists, the nihilists, and some of the rationalists of the 1960s. And so whenever mm -hmm. you have a, a big human edifice that falls away, the first thing you need to look at is something new that's going to arise in its place that's going to serve the same psychological need. And yeah. there is great profit in telling people they are sinful for being alive. And if they give you right. money, you will remove that sinfulness or you will forgive them for the sin of breathing. And of course, in, in Catholicism, it's original sin and you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the fall of Adam and the story. So you are sinful for being alive. But hey, Redmond, if you give me money... <laughs> <laughs> Lots of it for a long time and possibly even yeah. the foreskin of your firstborn. If you give me <laughs> lots of money for the rest of your life, don't worry, Redmond. I'm going to use my magic. I'm going to use my magic yeah. to make you not evil, to, to remove a curse that I have placed upon you myself. And so the environmentalism mm. serves the same thing. We are sinful. Why? Because we consume and we produce and we reproduce. In other words, we breathe uh, or we consume yes. energy or we manipulate nature. And that makes us uh, evil. But boy, if we give enough money and enough mm -hmm. uh, and seed enough of our freedom to the high priests of environmentalism, they will lift this curse uh, from us and they will make us 
uh, feel better about ourselves. So uh, to me, it's just it's it's the same thing. It's just original sin, uh, except now it's 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 breathing and being in disharmony with nature rather than um, you know being the fruit of the loins of Adam and Eve. It's the same 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 shit, different pile basically. Yeah, exactly, and th and that's exactly the way I see it. It essentially is sort of a, an anti-human religion in some ways. You know, it's a it's a framework of, of seeing the world. And what I find funny too is what I find entertaining about it as well is that oftentimes I'll have discussions with people about these sorts of things, and and they'll they'll be making the argument for you know an old growth forest or a particular a particular mix. And essentially, what what I'm pointing out to them is that okay, what you're saying is that you know exactly what the perfect mix of animals is within a given geographical location, right? Uh, you know the the whole concept of of the environment of the natural world doesn't exist outside of the human mind. Do you, do you get what I'm what I'm getting at in that sense? Yeah, um, that there's a balance that can be imposed through some sort of legislation or some sort of well, seizure of property. Yeah, well, well I mean, it's, yeah, one of the somehow things that they it, somehow that they understand the balance. You right. Know, these, these well, one of the things that has been minds. One of the things that's been truly disastrous for the environment is the car dependent culture, right? I mean, I think we can all accept that I mean, this is, you know, the production of cars, production of gasoline, huge amounts of political instability, wars are currently going on over this resource uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere. And, you know, it's really bad. So my question is, why does it always lead to more state power? This is this is the thing that bothers me the most, is that all roads lead to Rome. All problems lead to more state power. So environmentalists will come and say, oh, you know, well, we have this car-dependent culture. It's like, well, why do you think we have a car-dependent culture? Because the government's built the roads for free, you know, by deferring uh, the cost of the roads in terms of bonds and debt and, and all of that to the future. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that governments built roads everywhere and you did, did not charge people for using them is one of the reasons why we spread and we've got this huge culture. Who knows what society would look like if there were private toll roads? It certainly wouldn't look anything like it does right now. I mean, mm. farms would be located closer to cities. They say, oh, well, you should buy locally. It's like, well, the only reason that you don't have to buy locally, or why it's cheaper not to for some things, is because of this incredible subsidy of, of roads. So the other yeah. thing, too, is that people feel sentimental about forests. It's like, for me, if, if you feel sentimental, go buy them. You know, if, if we lived yeah. in a free market environment, go buy the forests, go get your friends together. But they all want to feel good about protecting the environment without putting any of their own hard earned dollars into the mix. And that's well, usually the test yeah. of whether someone's really committed. Well, it, well, which is funny, because when you look at a guy like Ted Turner, um, I don't know if you follow him at all, you know, founder of CNN, um, you know, Turner Broadcast Network. Uh, of Husband course, of he actually... Ex-husband of yes. Jane Fonda. Yeah. Ex-husband of Jane Fonda. Of course, he is actually right now the I think he's one of the this probably the single most the single largest private landowner in the United States at this time. And he is he is personally, you know, he's taken his fortune. And now I've he's got some terrible views on overpopulation, I think. Um, you know, a lot. I mean, I don't think that can exist, but you know, he's got some horrible views on those sorts of things. You know, the the, the planet should only have five hundred million people on it. Um, but he's, you know, he's taking his wealth and, uh, you know, he's he's purchasing land. So he owns it privately and he's saying, I'm going to restock Buffalo on this land. And I think, the, you know, um, his, his right. sort of uh, terrible views aside, I think he's doing the right thing in that way. All right. He's he yeah, is actually I mean, that doing essentially putting his money where his mouth is. 
Yeah, I mean, CNN, okay, so he got his money by being a status toady whore. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, if we forget about where his money came from, which is sucking yes, up the end okay. for his nipples, well, then, you know, okay, somebody, we can say at least, he's, yeah. Yeah, at least he's putting his money in buying stuff. Yeah, I think that's great. If you care about the environment, go buy stuff. Go do what you want to do. I think that's great. But, uh, you know, like I, yeah. again, of course, get in these endless arguments, which I don't really do that much anymore with global warming advocates yeah. and uh, beyond lumberg has a great book out called cool it where he goes into the solution to global warming even if we accept that it's real even if it, we accept that it's man-made even if we accept that it's catastrophic the solution uh, which has been worked out by a number of scientists some of whom are nobel winning experts in their field it, it's i don't, can't remember the details but it's like putting these huge tubes in the ocean that recycle the carbon dioxide or whatever and uh, it's been estimated to cost uh, even as a government project 80 to 100 million dollars. Ah, chicken feed. What's that? Like nine teachers in upstate New York. And yeah. so, um, so, so the fact is that this could be solved uh, for, with a drop in the bucket, but you never hear about those solutions. You know, what you hear is massive carbon tax trading and credits and all the stuff that's making Al Gore able to afford even more pasta. And well, so, yeah. the, the, why does it all have to lead to state power? Why can't we say the environment needs protecting and therefore the federal government should not be? should not own a third of the land in the United States because federal bureaucrats yeah. don't give a rat's ass about the land that they're in charge of. Yellowstone National mm. Park was a complete disaster ecologically for most of its history. I mean, yeah. and if you care about the environment, then you should be, of course, passionately anti-war. I mean, war is one of the most destructive things, the environment in the immediate shrapnel in your face and in the long-term environmental degradation yeah. that occurs. Uh, but a lot of that well, stuff is like, but and, and sorry to interrupt, but governments are, are running no, no, all of this stuff. Government are running the roads. Governments are, are controlling the land that's getting polluted. Governments are the biggest polluters. I mean, I worked in the environmental field for over a decade. Governments are insane as far as their pollution goes. So the idea that governments are going to protect your property is like saying, don't worry, I, uh, Santa, Santa is going to give me the Heimlich when I choke on a fishbone. Uh, so I'll be fine. Yeah, well, that was the interesting thing, of course. Um, the uh, if you might remember this, uh, the the big brouhaha about uh, clear cutting in Canada. Remember, there used to be these news stories about how well you know you can see these clear cuts from outer space. Now, of course, all of that clear cutting was occurring on crown land. Of course, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it wasn't. It wasn't you know. Whereas when you look in eastern Canada, uh, where you've got uh, the Irving, you know sort of the Irving company and, and they run they run forests and you know paper mills and those sorts of things. You don't see any clear cutting there. You see them managing the forests because they privately own them and they want those resources to be usable over multiple generations. Right? Yeah. I mean because out out on the West Coast they sold timber rights without land rights. And of mm -hmm. course, if you just sell timber rights without land rights, they're gonna go scoop out all the timber and not replant. Why would they don't own yeah. the land? Why, why, mm -hmm. why, why would you do that? But uh, it's the same thing with, you know, there are many more forest fires on government lands that are incredibly destructive than there are on privately owned lands. Because mm -hmm. in privately owned lands, they, they cut the swaths between. Uh, they also let forest fires burn sometimes on private lands because it's necessary to sort of clear out the undergrowth, clear out some of the dead trees and so on. Uh, and so whenever you see massive forest fires, I always assume that they originate. And if I, you know, get around to checking, it always is the case that they originate in public <laughs> parks. And uh, yeah. they don't do any clear cutting. They don't let the controlled fires burn, burn themselves through. And so you end up with these, you know, surface of the sun uh, scenarios, which are just catastrophic. So it's just yeah. this weird yeah. idea that someone out there is going to care about something they don't own. Uh, and this is yeah. one of the fundamental things that, that people don't really understand. There's no 
entity out there that like a deity or something who's going to care about a whole bunch of stuff that they don't own. And, yeah. uh, you know, if, if, if you lose your cat, you know, you're out there putting pictures up all over the place. If you hear about some missing cat, you're not doing all of that because it's not your cat. You may care about it mm -hmm. in an abstract sense. But the idea that people care about something that they don't own, at least, I mean, I'm sure they do care in some way, an abstract way, like it would be nice if, but actually caring about something they don't own. I mean, expecting the government to take care of the environment is like expecting people who rent cars to change the oil. It's not going to happen. They don't own it. Yeah. And, th and that's the interesting thing, of course. Um, you know, I guess there's always been people who have, you know, I, uh, you know sort of given some sort of supernatural, um, I guess, some some sort of supernatural being is, is, is part of the environment or it is, you know, Mother Earth, Gaia, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I guess the modern, you know, I guess the modern environmental movement, at least from the middle of the 19th century on, of course, moved along with with the with these collectivist mo movements of socialism and, and these sorts of things, right? If you look at um, one of the founding, uh, one of the founders of the modern environmental movement, a, a man named Ernst Haeckel, he essentially said that individuals don't actually exist, right? Human individuals do not possess an individual consciousness, he said, because humans are only part of a greater whole. And in 1866, Haeckel coined the term um, ecology, the whole science of the relations of the organism to the environment. And What's interesting to see is is that movement of collectivism and environmentalism that went through, particularly in Germany, where you saw the you know the Nazi uh, you know the Nazi government, uh, you know a very totalitarian fascist uh, government. You know I might argue that a lot of what our modern governments are, are modeled on sort of that so you know that national socialist model, that fascist model today. But of course they were they were absolutely in love with uh, quote unquote the environment, the the blue yeah. and the Bowden. Right. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things people and I, I only know this because I researched it for a novel I wrote once, but there's a, mm -hmm. a huge back to the land, natural hippie dippy movement. There's almost no characteristic of the hippie movement in the 1930s in Germany that was not replicated in in the 1960s in America. You know, the drugs, the promiscuity, uh, the back to the land, yeah. the unshaven, the natural look, the rejection of technology, the, the flight from cities, the communes. They did yeah. all of that stuff uh, before. And this dissolution uh, is the pendulum swinging this way, and then you get this vicious clamping down that is the response to it as well. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, G Germans, uh, they, they, you all think of this sort of jackbooted stuff, and that's all true. But man, they've got a hippy dippy side to them as well that uh, is is very sixties. Yeah, definitely. And well, I mean, you see that even today in their in their some somehow, I guess it's all self destructive obsession with things like windmills and solar panels and and all these sorts of things. Um, and, and what's interesting when you're talking about uh, the idea that somehow government is going to solve these problems, um, you know, the, uh, the Soviet Union, of course, and the Eastern Bloc had absolutely the worst environmental record, <laughs> right. far none, of the 20th century. You know, they, had lake, they had lakes that were burning for years. I mean, they're just yeah. horrendous spills and toxic waste and, and so on. I mean, it's, it's mad. Uh, and of course, we see well, this. I mean, when 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 the governments end up taking over neighborhoods because people have left those neighborhoods. I mean, look at Detroit, where the government owns a whole bunch of houses and stuff. How do those neighborhoods do? Is the government in there, uh, you know, cleaning things out, making sure there's no mildew, mowing the lawn? Of course not. Of course not. It's nothing yeah. in it for them fundamentally. And even though they could, you could argue, it would raise the value and they could then sell it and they'd get more property rights. There's something vaguely in it for them. But as soon as the government <laughs> owns a house, 
it immediately turns into a shit heap. I mean, it's just natural. And the, the idea that it's going to be different with some other uh, piece of property or, or wealth is, is a fantasy. Yeah, well, I, th I think it's the, you know, and, and again, you end up with these these knowledge problems, economic dislocations, of course, the more centralized power is, you know, the more that, you know, this this one remote will, which is quite distant from, you know, where the actual, you know, the, the actual people who might care about this land, who want to take care of this land, who wants to take care of this property, the more that you have a distant foreign entity trying to control this area, I think the more damage that's going to happen. And, and that's what I find um, so dangerous about things like the, you know, the sort of UNIPCC and the, those aspects of the modern environmental movement, because essentially what I see um, in things such as, um, you know, the precautionary principle or sustainable development, these types of ideas where I see what, what I see them trying to do is they're trying to implement uh, essential, essentially a, a form of global central planning of the Earth's resources, mm. right? And, and I think this goes back to the argument that you make um, about uh, about slaves and cotton, right? You have this, you have this, you know, this common this common thing you bring, this example you bring up of, of you know, well, what are we going to do without the slaves? Well, did you know that in 100 years, you know, there'll be the cotton gin, there'll be these machines that are harvesting it all? And it's the same thing with, with sustainable development. You know, if, if we had had... Um, the concepts of sustainable development in the year 1900, we would have been thinking about, well, in seven generations, how much coal will they need for the uh, for the ocean liners? <laughs> Could they be continuing <laughs> to bring people back and forth? Or, or how many how many acres of land will we need in the year 2100 for the you know millions upon millions of horses that crowd our city streets? Right. You know, they they simply right. and and you know we're going to dispose were, of all that horse dung, yeah. Yeah, you know, in, in 100 years, how will we sustainably, you know, pollute our, and, and I mean, you know, I, I do agree there's some issues with cars, but certainly, you know, car car exhaust far is a far better uh, thing to have to deal with than uh, horse manure and horse piss. Well, you know, and it's <laughs> something, Redmond, that, that you hear a lot about how, you know, sort of the free market or capitalism promotes this consumerist-based culture. But when you really think about it, Governments yeah. in the moment, politicians in the moment, profit the most from consumerism. And they work mm -hmm. to promote consumerism in the here and now. Well, Absolutely. why is it that governments want everyone to have a house? Well, partly because it's like the dream, the middle class dream or whatever. But also, the more economic activity that governments can stimulate, the more they will tax. The more they will grant Absolutely. licenses. The more they will tax the buying and selling of, of lumber and bricks and, and all that kind of stuff. So the more people that they can stimulate to, to do things, even if it's completely wasteful, like 10% of America's houses are uninhabited at the moment. What a massive environmental catastrophe. All of that mm -hmm. energy, all of those resources poured into building these houses that are turning into feces on stilts, right? And right. so governments have this, well, how do they measure GDP? It's not long-term sustainable productivity. None of that is measured. What is measured is economic activity. Even if it's a giant tumor, like sticking out of someone's head, they're like, hey, he's taller. He must be healthier, right? So yeah. there's this weird thing yeah. that governments profit enormously. People feel wealthier when there's an economic boom on. The governments get to tax like crazy. And by the time there's the inevitable Austrian cycle collapse, the existing politicians are out of office. So it, to yeah. me, it's the, if you look at government policies, they're really designed to stimulate economic activity, to pump up the numbers, to gain short-term unemployment. I think, I mean, obviously there's huge cost to, to capital and savings and, and human resources, mm -hmm. but 
there's a huge cost to the environment as well, these booms and busts. And somehow people think that that's the free market that's doing all this wild consumerism and spending and growth. But it's government through fiscal policy, through uh, through through uh, stimulation of various sectors of the economy, they just promote through through deficit financing. What is deficit financing but pr 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 promoting consumption in the here and now at the expense of consumption in the future, which is great for governments, bad for the environment, and bad for the future. Well, exactly, and and the the point I've been making recently to some people is that uh, in some ways, you know, government is the ultimate tragedy of the commons. Right. Right. Um, where it's where it's just it's being it's being abused it's being used uh, to to essentially favor one group favor another group um, the people who nominally run it you know the the bureaucrats and the politicians uh, they do their darndest essentially they do their 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 best to essentially completely dissolve or dispose of independent individual responsibility for their actions um, I mean, you live in Ontario with me here, and we can see that right now with the Green Energy Act and and um, and things like the the five hundred million dollars that were blown on uh, on canceling some uh, some gas fired gas gas generation plants right um, right now. Yeah. You know, supposedly were you know supposedly these were you know more environmentally friendly. They were going to replace a coal fired power plant. Um, yet somehow uh, you know somehow on the whim of a politician at the last minute they just get canceled. You know, and, and who's responsible? Nobody is responsible. You know, what what were the resources that went into that? You know, why would, you know, again, the politicians simply don't care, like you said, because they don't own it, you know. Yeah, and they get green votes for highly public things. And the thing that bothers me, too, and I think this is part of the anti-human, but I would I would say more specifically, it's an anti-poor mentality uh, that, yeah. that the Greens have, which I, I find particularly reprehensible. I mean, as you're probably aware, I mean, after Rachel Carson's largely fictitious book, The Silent Spring, about how DDT mm -hmm. is thinning out the, sh the, the eggs and, and the, the chicks are the silent spring, there'll be no birds and all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the science was, the, the numbers were fictitious and the science was, was terrible. Yeah. But what happened was, you know, in the hysteria of this and in the general momentum of this, no cost-benefit analysis is ever put forward for these things like yeah. a rational business or a caring human being would do. Um, well, they just this wave of hysteria went through the political landscape, and then well, let's ban DDT, which has yeah. resulted in about sixty to seventy million deaths. But they, see, they're in the mm -hmm. third world, right? Yeah. They're not uh, a concentrated group with, say, highly vocal uh, entertainment skills like the Jews, who can have six million. Of course, <laughs> terrible tragedy. It's sixty or seventy million people, but they don't do sitcoms. So we don't know about it. We don't find out about it. And now they're beginning to put DDT back in because they recognize that it's uh, really important uh, to, to keep, obviously, to keep malaria and to keep mosquitoes and other biting insects away. Uh, a little bit yeah, more effective for kids than, uh, you know, these, these nettings that they have and all that. So there's this, ma and, and the people who say, well, let's restrict our energy use and so on. I mean, God, have they never, ever been to a country outside there have they ever been outside the first world if you cut mm. electricity provision to poor people what do they no longer need energy no what they do is they burn wood which gives them lung damage and smoke inhalation problems and asthma and and yeah. they die like flies from that kind of situation so it's incredibly selfish that for people's vision of some sort of harmony with nature loud say <laughs> hallmark card fantasy land of, of the princess bride <laughs> unity with all that is I mean they're willing to literally sacrifice the lives of people uh, who have almost nothing to to yeah. live on 
uh, just for the sake of easing their own conscience. I mean, the, the, these people need energy. They need to live. I mean, what if space aliens had come down and said, no, you can't have an agricultural revolution in the 17th century. You can't have an industrial revolution yeah. in the 18th and 19th century. Well, we'd still be dying like flies at about the age of 25 from tooth decay. So it is uh, incredibly arrogant, insensitive, inhumane, unempathetic to want to assuage your own irrational conscience at the expense of literally potentially hundreds of millions of lives around the world if the people who are you know, for restricting energy based on global warming, if they get their way, I mean, people are going to die by the boatload. Yeah, and it's an incredibly, and that's what I see too, it's an incredibly uh, morally bankrupt uh, movement, you know. Um, and when you go back to people like Paul Ehrlich, of course, in the 19, you know, 1969. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, with, with Paul Ehrlich and, you know, the population bomb, um, and the population bomb, of course, and his, his prescription was, we should allow India to starve. Do not feed them. I mean, that's, that was his, that was his, uh, his prescription. Yeah, I mean, the process. classic retort to people population? who say that the human population ought to be significantly reduced is to say, well, I can think of one person you can start with. <laughs> Do us all a favor. Yeah, and, and on a slightly lighter note, I don't want it to be all down, but I, I want to touch on, and just uh, just showing the, the way that uh, environmentalism has been affecting our lives. But you can see this book. Uh, do you know this book? What uh, do, yeah, what, what do people do all... Yeah, I, Richard Scarry, I loved him when I was a kid. What do people do all day? I assume that this is a job about government bureaucrats because most other times, you know, firefighters put out fires and, and cooks cook food and so on and podcasters well, this one's, well, lather this one's on. Wonderful. Yeah, well, no, it's funny because... Because, you know, this is it actually I, I get the sense that he really had a, a sense of like sound economics because he talks about the division of labor here. Everyone's a worker and that sort of thing. So anyways, of course, I wanted to get this book when I had children. I wanted to get this book and uh, sort of uh, be able to read it to them. And then when I was flipping, I noticed in the stores, the newer versions are called abridged. They're the abridged version. Right. Uh -oh. And lo and behold, what we have abridged all common sense that may have made its way into yeah. the narrative, right? Yeah, exactly. So what is entertaining about it, though, is that this is the section that they abridge. It's all about how coal is dug up and is used to provide electricity for us. So there you go. Mm -hmm. So expunged from the history books, expunged from children's literature, is the fact that we use coal to produce electricity. Apparently they call it... Oh, this, they apparently just, they, they got used... rid of it. And also they don't want to normalize yeah. it. They don't want to go kids to know, oh, that's how we get our electricity. The other people tend, when they're older, people say it's bad. They don't want to, yeah. you know, have that initial impression that it's necessary and useful. Yeah, well, I was, yeah, I was exactly. talking, my, my, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the, by burning coal, we are able to make electricity work for us. The electricity lights our homes. That is why we call coal buried sunlight. There you go. So it's so <laughs> wonderful. I've never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I was, my daughter was, um, my daughter was asking, she always wants to know what, what shows I'm doing. And I, I right. she remembered who you were because, of course, we met uh, and yeah. our kids have met. And so she was saying, and, and she was trying to explain environmentalism to her. And I was saying, well, some people think that, they, that, that because there's some smoke that comes out of the back of cars that we shouldn't use cars. Right? <laughs> <laughs> use cars? I mean, but what if yeah. I need to go to hospital? Um, you know, how are people going to bring our groceries? I mean, you know, all the things. How am I going to get to my play center? I think that was the most important <laughs> one for her. But yeah. um, she really got Absolutely. it. Like, like, how could our whole civilization currently work if, if we couldn't use, use cars? And that the negative effects, even to our health and so on, of not being able to get to a hospital in, in a hurry would outweigh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, slightly fewer particulates in the air. Sorry, go ahead. 
Well, yeah, and, and that's the question, you know, when you look at these things like the, you say the precautionary principle, they say, well, what are the potential, what are the potential uh, effects of, you know, using X technology? But of course, the, to switch it around and turn it around, what are the potential effects of not using this technology? Right. And we can see in the first world, you know, when you when you look at something like DDT, of course, we've seen the first world. Uh, you and I did not suffer from malaria as children because a, a generation I'm before fine. we used DDT, you know, and and so we have this perfectly good technology. We can use it to eliminate malaria, um, which is, you know, I think if if there was any of the, you know, 99 percent of the species that have existed on the planet Earth. Um, have gone extinct. You know, I, I think that nobody would miss mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you you don't have to eliminate mosquitoes. You just have to keep them true. away from people. I mean, any way you go in the woods, yeah. just just keep them away from the people. That's all. Yeah. And well, that's what it is. And and especially with malaria, it's it's simply what's interesting about that. It's the it's the human to human uh, contact. It's with a uh, if a mosquito bites one human who's got malaria, they transmit it to the other human. So as long as you can break that. If you break that sort of link, and and what's interesting is now in southern Europe, in certain places, malaria is actually starting to come back. So of course, mm. you're going to start to see a push for DDT coming back again now that Europeans are starting to get malaria. Oh yes, well of course. Totally. I mean, we wouldn't want Europeans yeah. getting sick. I mean, third world people obviously you know just stack them with a fork. But uh, obviously, yeah. if Europeans get sick, we'll revisit it. Oh yeah, and so it's once we have controlled nature, and once I mean. Nature, when she's in charge, is a complete bitch. I mean, he's just horrible. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, I was always, you know, I, had, I had to carry a gun around when I because because there were bears and stuff. You know, you rip your scalp yeah. off and stuff. I mean, uh, it's some scary stuff that, that's out there. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's hard to feel at one with nature, you know, when you're being shadowed by a shark while you're, <laughs> you know, while you're... Uh, uh, boarding or something like that, or or, or um, yeah. So so I think that once we've got away from all of that, we can luxuriate in nature is pretty. Because right? where do we build houses? We build houses to look over nature where nature is pretty, and we go hiking where nature is really pretty, and we go swimming in beautiful lakes. And so when mm. we when we have recreation, when we have recreational nature. It's pretty. It's beautiful. We and we don't stay. We never stay, you know. Or maybe we'll stay for no. a night or two and sleep with the tree trunk half up our ass because you know we got a tent or something. But we don't yeah. stay, and so we sort of bungee into the prettiest parts of nature, and then we bungee back out and get into our air conditioned SUVs. And so yeah, because well, of that, we forget what nature is really is real all really all about. It's like it's like going to a beach in Jamaica and saying. But this place is paradise. And then you go back. And it's like, well, you only saw the part that was carved out to look as good as possible. And you didn't see the slums and you didn't see the drug machete attacks and you didn't see the corruption. And right. Because you just bungee in and bungee out. And we have to have the discipline mm -hmm. to remember uh, what nature is like when she's in charge yeah. and to remember that we really do want to keep a pretty firm grip on where things are. And if we are concerned about resource depletion, I mean, uh, I wrote an essay years ago, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, about the cod industry in Newfoundland that sustained itself for 400 years of private consumption. And then when mm -hmm. the government took over the quotas, they wanted to get as much taxes as possible. They wanted to make people feel as wealthy as possible. They kept upping the quotas. And the cod stocks have now been gone for, what, 15, 20 years uh, and show no signs of returning. It was one of the great natural resources of North America. Well, and of course, another interesting thing about uh, about, you know, when you're talking about property rights and uh, natural resource depletion, of course, the the most important thing is to have private property rights applied to natural resources so people will be incentivized to use them wisely, right? Um, you know, just speaking about fishing in general, um, you know, most water is, quote-unquote, international waters, 
right? Which it's owned by nobody, so nobody cares about it. So these, you know, when you when you see these issues, I remember, um, you know, when they talk about this this great North this uh, Pacific gyre or something like that, where there's this these plastic bits just floating around, sort of in this one part of uh, the Pacific because it sort of spins around. Well, of course, no one owns it. No one's interested in cleaning it up. You know, they're saying, well, why couldn't we get somebody to clean it up? Well, you know, if if somebody did own that part of the ocean, I think that if we did have the have the in some ways the guts to apply private property rights to the oceans, I think that a lot of those problems would be solved fairly quickly. You know, yeah, and if somebody um, found economic and, and even if, if you could own it, then charity, even if there was no economic value in it whatsoever, yeah. there would be sentimental value. Uh, in just going to clean it up. I mean, I, I donate some money towards doing that. I don't like the idea of all this, this crap floating around in the ocean. I'd be happy to pay for that. Uh, so yeah, people, you know, if the environmentalism movement is strong enough to affect policy in a democratic society, then it is easily strong enough to achieve far more effective results uh, in in a free market. Because mm -hmm. obviously, environmentalism is a big enough movement that you know you put green on your package, you triple your sales. I mean, because the company yeah. that I co-founded was an environmental company, people wanted us to be in their stock portfolios because we were green, you know, and that mattered, that yeah. counted, the ethical stock yeah. investors and so on really cared about. So there's no doubt that there's enough motive to get this stuff done and people will, will donate time, money and energy to do all of this stuff. But right now, there's just this big, big foggy Borg in the way called the state that is interfering with all the creative solutions and all the genuine protection of things, as you pointed out. People say, well, there's a problem of the commons, which is that which is unowned is exploited by everyone. So let's have a government, and then you just create this magical exclusion from the problem of the commons <laughs> called the government. But the government is the entity most yeah. subject to the problem of the commons. No one owns it. They just exactly. rape and pillage its resources and move on. Yeah. And, and you know, turning and again, turning to uh, net resources and whatnot, what I find funny is that, you know, I was uh, I work in sort of a design field as well. And, you know, I was designing lighting, sort of manufactured in China, shipped to North America and whatnot. And. You know, one of these big things is about packaging and whatnot. Um, but when you look at something like packaging, of course, we as designers and, and people who were shipping products from place to place, we tried to negotiate, we tried to find that perfect spot where we would use as little packaging as possible. So it would be as cheap as possible, but just so much that it would arrive at its destination safely so it wouldn't be wasted. Right. Right. We're always right. trying to find. And, and what was interesting, of course, and it's all motivated by the profit motive, because we were personally invested in creating a product that a used as little resources as possible in maybe in part. So it could either be cheap or we could have a pro higher profit margin and b also, but would have enough packaging that it would survive from factory to end users home. Right. And this was just it was just naturally what we did. We didn't need the government to tell us to do this. You know, it, it's, oh. it's a funny, it's a funny sort of thing. Let me tell you one other thing, just to um, make sure that we get the requisite amount of hate mail that that you deserve. <laughs> I think, as original yes. thinkers, I I feel if I'm if I'm not getting the hate mail, I just uh, I feel like yeah. I haven't done uh, my job for the day. But have right. you ever noticed? Maybe this is just me. So tell me if this is you know way off base for for you. But have you ever noticed yeah. how environmental problems always seem to be male? You know, it's it's mm -hmm. all the male-based things that are oh, yeah. uh, problematic. So, for instance, like I've, you go to a mall, right? I mean, go to a mall. So I go to a mall with my daughter, right? Of the stores, I actually counted this up the other day. Of the stores in the average mall, how many do you think are dedicated to guy stuff? 
three, maybe. Bass Pro. Yeah. You know, a Bass Pro, maybe. About, about three. There's, <laughs> uh, you know, in the mall that I went to, uh, there's uh, a Radio Shack. Kind of guy stuff, right? I mean, remote yeah. control cars and computers and stuff like that. So kind of guy stuff. And there was a Sony store, eh, you know, okay, they had some pretty candy-colored laptops and all that kind of stuff, you know, big giant flapping M&M-looking <laughs> things. But, yeah. it, you know, it's, you know it's, it's TV so big that they're visible from Mars. And I assume that that's kind of right. guy stuff. And, yeah. you know, one sporting goods that. store, which, you know, also sold a bunch of women's workout. But generally, it was, you know, three stores, maybe three and a half. And then there was one or two stores which were just kids, you know, Toys R Us or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Everything else in the entire mall <laughs> was focused. <laughs> uh, ever ever think about whether there's a patriarchy or just stand on the ground oh, floor of, of a big department yeah. store and just take a look around? It's perfume, well, it's, it's makeup, it's shoes, oh. it's handbags. It's just, I mean, you name it. The amount of consumerism that goes on that is driven by women who, you know, women run 80% of domestic, like of, of household spending is 80% of it is run by women. So to me, it's kind of weird that if you really cared about the environment, I mean, wouldn't you really focus on trying to curb the materialism of your average, not all, but your average woman uh, and all the <laughs> crap that she wants to buy that drives entire mall economies, <laughs> like drives, uh, I guess, 70% yeah. of the shipping that goes across the ocean, <laughs> drives, I don't know how many animal deaths to yeah. make shoes and, and purses, drives yeah. how much resource requirements to, to go and dig and make whatever the crap they make this stuff out of, right? I mean, there's oh, like, yeah. it's insane. Like there's a store called, I can't remember, it was Claire's or something like that. And, and you know, my daughter Mary and some Claire friends who like to go in there. Like no, oh, no, yeah. it's, 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 um, and basically there's a line in the movie Despicable Me too, where the, the main character says, you know, to his kids, go and buy some mall junk, <laughs> you know, that girls like, you know, Cause, and you go into the store and it's like little bracelets and, and pens with floaty things in them and tufts on top and and little makeup yeah. cases and stuff like that it's sort of i think it's a tween store or something like that and yeah. it's like dear god there's not one functional thing you would ever need on a desert island or to survive a shark attack or to survive a sunburn or there's nothing functional here it's all just colorful crap that you buy you wear three times it breaks and you throw it out and yeah. just, I invite people interested in the environment. I'll stop my rant now. But I just invite people who are interested in the environment. <laughs> Why can't we talk about women and this mindless consumerism that occurs, this sex well, in the city see, planet of wasted but, resources? Why is it always the men's stuff that is always focused well, on? Anyway, that's the end of because, my rant. I'm out of air anyway. Because it's, it's Mother Earth. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Okay. Mother Earth. <laughs> it's not Father Earth. And the big drills. Of the men going into a terrible, oh, my well, God. Watch that in well, this is what, this is what I would ask on. my – well, yeah. I, I mean, this is what I, I – that's what I asked. I said, how do you rape the planet? <laughs> and it's only – you know, I, I don't understand. <laughs> do I do I right. screw a knothole in a tree or something like that? I mean, you know, we're just talking about Redmond, moving I have rock. to say, challenge, challenge accepted. Um, okay. I, I'm going to find this out. I'm going to film it yeah. in slow-mo, and I'm going to send you a copy. <laughs> I'm going to figure this one out. And I, I think it's going so to have gonna, something are, to do with the mall drain. Sorry. Okay, so you're gonna you're gonna attempt to rape the planet. You will you'll make it happen, is what you're saying. Well, no, I um, because I've been challenged to learn more about the pickup artist uh, industry. Uh, I am actually <laughs> going to attempt to, um, you know, mind screw the planet into um, seductive submission. Uh, so I'll just be out chatting oh, up, oh, chatting oh. up a redwood uh, after the show. Oh, excellent! Uh, yeah, and telling okay. it that it looks pretty but a little fat. 
Um, so just really getting crazy. really getting in tune with uh, with Mother Nature, so that you can. Oh yes, so that she will submit. No, I, th- to I think we have to. And you I think we now have to refer her? to her. Sorry, go ahead. So that you can you can she will submit to you, so you can exploit her. Essentially, is what you're talking. I think about. that now we're going to have to refer to her as Milf Nature. Um, <laughs> that's the way it's gonna have that's to go. Excellent. That's just the way it's going to have to go. I apologize in advance. But... <laughs> well, speaking of yeah, well, it's funny, right? Because uh, I only I mean, know that from weeds. Anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, well, and it is, of course, um, and it is, of course, uh, you know, when you go to uh, Sierra Club, a call to action, handbook for ecology, peace, and justice. The political and economic system that destroys the earth is the same system that exploits workers i.e. capitalism and then of course we have that wonderful and it is it is kind of funny how how environmentalism is mixed up with this anti-capitalistic mentality but as you point out it's merely another kind of uh it's merely another merely another kind of conspicuous consumption right um which is completely irrational even from their own you know even from their own uh measurements right when you look at something like i think the british government a little while ago looked at uh, things like plastic bags, right? And they compared them to, um, you know, they compared them to, uh, I guess, these quote-unquote reusable shopping bags. Um, and I think they found you would have to use something like, uh, th- you know, 340 plastic bags or something like that to to equivalent, to, to, to equate to one reusable bag. Now, I... I don't know about your reusable bags, but now, you know, I've over the years have collected, I'd say about 50 of them. I threw out about 30 of them uh, probably a couple, you know, a couple months ago. And even the ones I do own probably have only lasted maybe 25 uses, maybe 30 uses. No, but that's good because, you know, one, one thing that's one thing that's tough about the plastic bags is it's really hard to hide the life-threatening bacteria that you need for a very carbon-burning <laughs> trip to emergency. Because one of the things they found with these reusable bags is, you know, they've got like bits and craps of strawberries jammed in the corners and, and oh, Lord knows yeah. what. And they're just like bacteria pits. I mean, you know, you want to you hit those with a flamethrower from about 50 yards, uh, call yeah. in an airstrike. Just, I mean, they're biohazards. And, you know, yeah. when you get sick, that's not very good for the environment either. Uh, so, again, you just can't look at the full picture of, of how these things work. It's just sentiment. Well, plastic is bad and, and yeah. cloth is good and reusable is good. But, you know, people get sick from this stuff. <laughs> well, not only that, but when you, look at, when you look at the amount of resources, I mean, you know, not to harp on cloth bags too much, but when you look at the amount of resources that goes to uh, growing cotton, harvesting cotton, keeping it from, uh, you know, the amount of pesticides, the amount of uh, fertilizers that go into creating this stuff, you know, then you've got to bleach it, you've got to color it, you've got to ship it, it's heavier, it's thicker, as you said. Uh, and again, this, this is this whole precautionary principle thing, you know, there's sure that there's a cost to using, you know, plastic to wrap around your meat. What is the cost of not using plastic to wrap around your meat? What is the cost of? Well, of course, then we shouldn't eat animals, but that's a whole other. We could have a whole other discussion on on animal rights. And, well, and, and if you remember this cash flow clunkers, I think it was in Obama's first term mm-hmm. he put in this cash flow clunkers. They got to buy your old cars because old cars tend to burn dirtier than new cars. Right. And oh man, I mean, I tried doing some <laughs> research on this, and I spent a couple of hours on it. I could never find the the facts that I needed. But I wanted I love to the find truth out. About clash with clunkers, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to find out how much energy and what kind of environmental damage it took to create a new car, and yeah. then compare that to the difference uh, in in how they burn fuel. 
And uh, boy, I mean, I, I, could, I got him. You would have to drive an old car for approximately 900 billion years or something like that to, to overcome the economic damage. Uh, or, or the environmental damage uh, that is caused by a new car, right? Like this is the Prius thing, mm -hmm. right? I've read an economist yeah. uh, who, um, who tore apart the Prius thing. Like, I mean, the amount of uh, uh, energy and toxicity it, it takes to create the uh, the battery that is then shipped over on a tanker that's very heavy from, from Japan to wherever they build it. And, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, right? The amount of extra mm -hmm. that you have to drive because you can't find a place to plug it in, that kind of stuff. And he said, you know, it, Priuses are far worse than gas-burning cars. And then the interviewer said, and what do you drive? And he said, well, I drive a Prius because I'm not <laughs> immune to social pressure, right? Because if you're, you know, if you're a faculty, you have to, I mean, if you park in a gas pan, nobody's going to invite you to their soirees and, and so on, right? And you might not get tenure if you're a coal-burning son of a bitch. So, uh, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's all just nonsense. There's, it's all sentiment. I mean... The cost-benefit analysis, the rational analysis, the the empathetic uh, compassion for those who are still struggling out of poverty. I mean, none of mm -hmm. none of that exists. And also, I mean, if, if if you're supposed to grow locally and and consume locally, why the hell do the governments keep shutting people down for growing their own vegetables? I mean, that's mad, <laughs> right? I mean, these are the people who are going to save us from the planet. Yeah. They won't even let us grow a half an ear of corn in our in our discarded toilet. It's crazy. Yeah, or drinking their own milk. And, it, and well, and it's a funny thing. The you know, it's almost like a hatred of the division of labor to some extent. You know, the uh, there there is some you know some nativism in that, and, and there's all there's all sorts of uh, issues rolled into that. But I, I just wanted to point out, pick on one thing that you you discussed uh, the, the idea, the concept of. Well, yeah, many, many only one. Have. What am I not doing so, my job? Sorry. Well, no. In turning back to the feminine, I don't know if you remember this, but one of the first talks we ever had. Um, you actually got in huge amounts of trouble for something you said about feminism. That was, I remember the, uh, I don't know if you remember that, the Marx, what was it? Feminism is Marxism uh, with panties, but. <laughs> no, socialism with panties. Socialism with yeah, panties. And I, yeah, and I did a follow-up video where I quoted, yeah. you know, massive amounts of, of feminists uh, and uh, from the 50s and 60s. And, you know, then, of course, uh, you know, when, when I actually provided the facts to back up, which, of course, is an argument, it wasn't even an argument, it's just a statement, you, you back it up with facts, and then people just go off and find somebody else to bother them. Anyway. Yeah, but anyways, but what I was going to say was, uh, and actually, uh, well, we could touch on, on this other talk you had a little while ago, or in a little bit, but when you talk about environmental damage, um, what, what, again, what I find funny about the concept of environmental damage is that, um, again, the environment, you know, quote unquote, the, I hate to use the term environment or, or whatever, but essentially change is the only constant, right? Um, if, if we look at we, we look at Canada today, say, you know, the geographical region known as Canada today, uh, you know, 10,000, 12,000 years ago, there were no trees in Canada, zero, none whatsoever, right? Really? Um, uh, because the, uh, you know, we were covered in what, five kilometers of ice, something like that in the last ice age. Or you was know, it just was... the natives had a really tough immigration policy for non-mobile <laughs> plant life? It's really, don't compete yeah. with our totem poles, man. We got to be tallest. Anyway, go on. Well, but this is it, right? I mean, it, it's, you know, you, you talk about, quote unquote, damage, but everything is just con constantly changing. And this is another thing that I find about the environmental argument or the environmentalist argument. Is it, is it, do they believe in, do they believe in some sort of um, stasis? Stasis, as in, yeah. Yeah. Before humans existed, were we were was the Earth just static, right? Before we decided to get all uppity and start burning fossil fuels, somehow it was static, and 
and great changes did not occur. It, it seems to just, conf you know, it's just this, um, you know, that thing, I mean, these two ideas well, yeah, that no. are opposing each other and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, damage, I mean, what, what is damage? I mean, I, you know, I, I dig a hole in the ground, I get some gold out or I, I you know, I'm, I'm able to build a building with some rock that I've, that I've dug out. Um, you know, maybe those, those quarries can actually look quite nice and maybe Edward Bertinsky can go make a career photographing these very attractive marble quarries. Well, and you know, you, you, I mean, if you're a mob boss, you, you can't hide bodies in a puddle. You need abandoned <laughs> quarries with a sufficient amount of, uh, of water, water uh, and, yeah. and darkness. Um, yes. No, but look, there's a lot of people who love static societies. You know, people, yes. people who aren't that smart, um, they like static societies because otherwise, like, I love new stuff. I love to learn new stuff, new technology, new yeah. ideas. That's what the great thing is about the job that I have is I'm constantly get to research really cool new stuff that I've never heard about before that blows my mind on a regular basis. Mm. But a lot of people don't like that. They just, they want to go to work, do the same job for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and go home. I mean, yeah. there's no way that societies like the Chinese society, which was static for thousands of years, could have possibly mm -hmm. remained that way if nobody liked it. I'm not calling the Chinese yeah. dumb. I think statistically they're smarter than whites on average. <laughs> the IQ is higher <laughs> for Orientals uh, by a couple of points. At least that's the statistics that I've heard. But yeah. Yeah. societies that are stagnant, that, that don't change, they serve the needs of you know highly anxious people or not very intelligent people who just either are stressed by change or don't want change and so on. And mm -hmm. so um, I think that there is a yearning. You know, what is it? The, 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 to me, the ideal always seems to be kind of medieval uh, of the environmental movement. You know, like when we, you, you, you farmed by hand and you, you had the simple life and you were Amish or whatever. And, and of course, you take these people, you know, nine feet from a cell phone and they burst into flames. But, but I think right. that there is this idea that, that there's this, this static, repetitive, time-worn, you know, tradition rules and this kind of stuff where uh, the mm. footprint that humanity leaves on the planet is not growing every year as it kind of is these days. And I, I, I kind of understand that yearning. I mean, it is, you know, sometimes it would be nice to imagine or it is nice to imagine there's sort of a simpler world that doesn't change where, you know, the, the, you know what's mm -hmm. coming and, and the way you teach your kids is exactly what your grandparents were taught and so on. And I mean, that's all, yeah. you know, unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, it's sort of by the wayside these days. But I think for some people, a static society is, is really nice. I think it's something they can relax into because, you know, the hurly-burly of the modern world. I mean, we do have issues in the West with happiness, you know. I mean, we are not mm. ranked or rated very high. Uh, and yeah. typically, the wealthier a society gets, the more mental health issues it has. The wealthier a society gets, the unhappier it tends to get. I don't think that's the fault of money. I certainly don't think it's the fault of the free market. But out of that, I think, mm. does come a yearning for a simpler time. You know, when you, you learned how to plow a field, then that's what you learned. And that had value until you were dead. You know, now yeah. people learn stuff uh, and then it's obsolete. And particularly in the computer field, you learn stuff and it's obsolete in, in sort of six to 18 months. Uh, you know, yeah. I've been out of the computer field now for a couple of years. I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine going back in and trying to learn all the new stuff. So I just wanted yeah. to point out that there is, I think, a yearning uh, among certain sections of the population for some sort of stasis because I think they view this as a sort of moving sidewalk that just keeps getting faster and faster and they can't keep up. Yeah, well, and, and it's also what's interesting about that too is when you look back to the the modern, the roots of the modern environmental movement and you can see it with people such as Prince Charles, 
it was very much and you know when you talk about hating the poor and whatnot right it was very much uh it did very much come from the upper classes it came from the landed aristocracy who at a in a very real sense had their place within society completely uprooted by capitalism by the well by and the, and uh, like sort of like marxism like uh, fabian socialism like marxism like like uh, radical feminism like all of these isms all come from the wealthy and educated classes i would argue that the industrial revolution was a bottom up because people voted with their feet to go to the factories and escape the godforsaken life on the farms uh, so hmm. um, one of the few movements has been the free market movement that really comes from the bottom up because it can't be imposed. You cannot impose the free market from the top down. All these other ideologies can be imposed from the top down. And this is why the wealthy classes tend to be right. so central in how they get inflicted. Uh, but the free market is the the aggregation, of course, of voluntary choices of all sections in society and the poor outnumber the rich. So it's one of the few truly democratic movements as opposed to all this top down semi-fascistic stuff, which always leads to continual catastrophes. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's the thing, you know, like, um, I, I think a friend of mine down the street, I think he has, you know, his parents came from sort of uh, southern Italy, which, you know, after World War II was virtually a third world country. You know, my own, uh, my own relatives, my, my opa, I guess my, my uh, grandfather who grew, up, who grew up in Hungary, he was an ethnic German within Hungary. I mean, they were really peasant farmers. Right. I mean, they live by essentially scratching in the dirt, you know, my my own roots and, you know, people I know. It's not that far away from from that sort of um, subsistence farming life. Right. And yeah. anybody when you talk to these people, you know, they, they say, you know, people who um, people who idealize that never experienced it. You know what I mean? And, and <laughs> what is interesting now today is you still do have you have almost this exact same dynamic going on where you have. Uh, wealthy Westerners, essentially, you know, Europeans and, and whatnot, going to Africa, literally going to Africa and saying, stay poor, do not, do not work to improve your lives. You don't want what we have. And if you try to get it, we're going to stop you from getting it. And that's exactly what goes on. Oh, my today. God. And, you know, as a guy who spent some time in Africa, I got to tell you, I mean, the Africans are not poor because of a choice. Dear God in yeah. heaven. I mean, like, like, oh, you, you could have three cars in the garage and a swimming pool and a jacuzzi, but I really respect your choice to remain a child soldier. I mean, Jesus Christ, how patronizing and condescending. I mean, the, the Africans are poor because yeah. they have these psycho governments and the psycho governments yeah. are propped up and armed by Western foreign aid. Um, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely yeah. wretched. Uh, uh, and this idea that, yeah, I mean, just go, go and stay. I mean, they, they don't want to be poor. They want to have exactly the same opportunities as the rest of us have been blessed by history and, and coincidence with. And I think it was John mm -hmm. Kenneth Galbraith who, who grew up on a farm. And uh, he said, uh, you know, w once you've worked on a farm, nothing else seems like work. And I, I think that I've never worked on a farm, but I have done a fair amount of uh, trail of, of uh, staking claims and and prospecting all that. That's some, that's some badass backbreaking labor. And uh, you know, yeah. uh, there's a great book out by Charles Murray uh, about the sort of failings of the middle class or failing middle class. And he's got some questions for the elites. And I'd like to actually, I'm going to try and get him on the show and ask him if I can reprint them. But you know, one of the mm -hmm. questions he has for the elites who want to claim to be able to run society is. Uh, have you ever had a job where any part of your body aches at the end of the day? <laughs> that would be a It's an interesting question because, question. you know, yeah. majority of a lot of people do. He said, and the other one was, do yeah. you uh, do you know anyone who smokes? 
<laughs> here's here's a tricky yeah. one. Um, yeah. Do you do you know what Branson is? I didn't Branson I didn't know this one at all. But Charles no, not in, Richard Branson, but Branson, Missouri, is one of the biggest tourist oh. destinations in America. But it's all country and western, all the time. Ah, and so, of course, okay. the elites have no clue. But they get like so six million Nashville. people a year going through there, listening to and Nashville. I think is more for recording. This is more for performing. Okay. Uh, and then he lists sort of the top 10 movies. Uh, have you seen any of these movies or what do you think? And, and so on. And, you know, some of them are pretty cheesy, but some of them are pretty good. And he's got lots of questions yeah. about, you know, have you ever lived for a year or more in a town of 10,000 or less people? Because like a quarter mm -hmm. of Americans do. Do you know anyone right. who's ever done that? You know, so he's got lots of questions for the for the elites who claim to run society to, to, to try and gauge the degree to which they actually might have some understanding of the people whose lives they claim to want to organize for the better. And of course, if you've had yeah. no experience living these kinds of lives, then um, uh, how on earth could you claim to, you, you're, you're like a gentleman farmer, like somebody who doesn't have any idea which end of a cow the milk comes <laughs> out of, but claims that he's a farmer. I mean, it's embarrassing. Uh, but yeah, yeah so well, these kinds that, of questions I think yeah. pretty important. Yeah, definitely. And then I, I think uh, we'll probably bring it to a close soon just because we've been going for about an oh, hour Oh, but now, let's but, make sure uh, we uh, we pump uh, the upcoming event. Oh, October. yeah, for sure. But it, yeah, October. But I just I did actually want to talk. I just want to talk to you about, um, to some extent, the um, do morals exist outside of human, um, human, essentially human existence outside of the human mind. Right. Um, no. Like in terms of, yeah, like, and that's what I mean. Yeah, about, yeah. Uh, like it's like the scientific method. Yeah. yeah, the scientific method or, or higher mathematics don't exist in the absence of human consciousness. It doesn't mean that yeah. they're subjective. See, people think that because it's in right. your mind, it must be subjective. But the mm -hmm. scientific method doesn't exist in the real world, but that doesn't make it subjective. Mathematics, uh, yeah, things exist in the world, but numbers don't. That doesn't mean that numbers are subjective. Um, so, no, I don't yeah. think that morals exist. And I sort of try and make this point with annoying regularity in my book on ethics, but... No, they they don't exist, um, but that doesn't mean that they're subjective. Yeah, well, and that's it's an interesting point because oftentimes what you what you're uh, what I find funny too is that oftentimes environmentalists are actually attempting to apply morals to the amoral world of animals and plants. Right? Uh, you know, again, it, it harkens back to this this thing I was discussing with you about the fact that you know they they know the perfect. Uh, number and mix of animals within that should be within a given location, and they almost right. they almost decide that it's a it's an it's a moral. There there's there's the proper moral and just amount of ice within the Arctic, right? And if, it, <laughs> if it's and there's the proper and moral just number of of spotted owls within the 500 square kilometers of this particular forest. And, and, and this species reason. must never be allowed to go extinct, no matter what room yeah. it may make for other species. I mean, if the dinosaurs had never yeah. gone extinct, we sure as hell wouldn't be having this conversation. Or if we would, it would be over, <laughs> over a tasty carcass of brontosaurus meat uh, with giant Tyrannosaurus rex teeth. Well, it's, it's a funny thing, you know, just to, just to explore these ideas. And, you know, if, if, if uh, you know, let's say around, around a volcano, there's a, there's a particular number of, of species that are unique to that, that one particular area around this volcano. Should, how, many, how much resources should human beings expend to absolutely stop those species from ever becoming extinct ever, even if it's a live volcano? I mean, I mean should we spend well, our, and of course, our entire resources to go and, insane? And, and the answer is, who knows? But if you feel yeah. passionately about it, go make a case for it to the, to the general public. 
You know, yeah. like I, I'm passionate about Attempt philosophy. Yeah. yeah. So I go to make the case that, that people should subsidize at least one philosopher in the world, namely Big Chatty Forehead. <laughs> and so uh, I make that case. I don't go around telling, I don't go around applying for government grants and telling people at gunpoint they have to fund me. I go around saying, uh, I'd really like yeah. to continue doing what I'm doing. I need some cash to do it. Would you like to send some? And that's how I make the case because I'm a civilized human being and I want the market to decide whether what I provide has value to people. And so if you want to keep the, you know, the lesser spotted snail daughter alive, fantastic. Go buy up the land. If you don't have the land, go talk to people. Go, go print up some pamphlets. Go make, oh, don't print up some pamphlets. Sorry, I involve wood. But go uh, skywrite. No, don't skywrite. That involves planes. Uh, go sign language, you know, without consuming any oxygen or food. Go do some sign, go do something, convince people to give you their money, convince people to get involved. That's how civilized human beings get things done. We don't just run off to big daddy Warbucks gunhead known as the state and point him at everyone and say, aha, look, I've, I've, I've had success. No, you've just marshaled violence to get your way. Uh, and yeah. the market should decide what is important to people. People should decide what is important to them. And you can influence people. You can. And the, the sad thing is the environment would be far better protected without the state ordering everyone around. Uh, it's, and the mm. amount of environmental waste that, that goes on with statist programs. I mean, I mean, there's nothing. I mean, the stuff that goes on in China, you know, these massive, damn-busting, giant-ass projects yeah. where they're building entire cities to be inhabited by the ghosts of Ghibli film animators or something. I mean, there's nothing there. And you look at the amount yeah. of environmental waste that goes into building stadiums that then fall into disuse. So there's this whole, um, outside of Montreal, a friend of mine and I, and I explored this many years ago, this Olympic village left over. Oh, it was a, a village left over from the 67 Expo, for God's sakes. It's still yeah. there, rotting apart. There's lights flickering on in it somewhere. This all status stuff. Look at these giant dams, these massive hydroelectric projects that go on in the third world, funded by foreign aid projects. It's just about filling the pockets of contractors from here. I mean, yeah. it's just massive waste. And, and my God, we, we would find that we'd probably need less than half of the energy or a quarter of the energy if the government wasn't wasting it uh, doing all of this stuff. And uh, with private property, things would be so much better. It just bothers me that it seems lazy. It's always, to me, lazy. It's like somebody who says, well, I really want to go and help people, so I'm going to get down and pray. Actually, that's not really helping people. That's just easing your conscience. And then people say, well, I really want to help the environment, so I'm just going to go get a law passed. And, ah, look, I got a law passed. I helped the environment. No, you didn't. You actually harmed the environment by creating perverse disincentives for optimization of resources. Anyway. Yeah, well, and that's it. And, and you know, and, and, and when it comes down to it, uh, you know, for all this, it, it's it's bipolar. You know, this the hatred of capitalism or the you know or the free market or or private property because it's in some ways they argue it's too efficient, right? It's oh, it's it doesn't care about other things yet. Yet, if you want to help the environment, you should want to be efficient. You should want to use, and that's exactly what anybody who's involved in a profit-making enterprise is interested in. Is interested in efficiency. Anyways. So, uh, okay, yeah, so October, October, Give us the pitch. So, take off your shirt. Uh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> you can start. I don't know. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Let me know. put the music on. Well, I got to work. Well, I guess I, I got to start working on that, uh, on the whole, uh, what is it? Um, putting the moves on mother earth, right? Or milk, milk, milk for earth. Milk for earth. Mother milk. Okay. So, is it, so is wait, it October. Classic? Yeah. Okay. What's so the... again, so again, uh, so last year we ran the, the, uh, Liberty now conference, um, which was, um, 
very well received. Uh, you were the Great keynote talks. speaker, um, and I believe you're going to be coming back again. Um, I am. Uh, I am. It's my Back from the Dead tour. <laughs> I've been, I had to cancel all my speaking engagements in the summer for various treatments. And so, yes, yeah. I, I will be, in fact, uh, uh, clawing my way out of a coffin uh, as my opening <laughs> act. Uh, so, yes, I'm looking forward to being back in front of people. Yeah, so we're so we're looking at that. Uh, so this is what, again, uh, this is myself. I'm working with uh, guys from the Ontario Libertarian Party on that. Uh, the Institute for Liberal Studies, we're sort of just organizing it um, uh, you know, there's going to be, we, last year we had gun rights people, we had, uh, educate, you know, freedom of education people there. We had a number of philosophers, economics, we had, um, media people talking about spreading, you know, spreading the message of liberty of individual rights, those sorts of things. Um, and so this year again, we're, I think we might be doing some focusing, actually, maybe you could speak to this, uh, and possibly I'd love to get up that speaker, um, or that person who you went and saw, you just did that video on, um, uh, healthcare. In the United States. Oh yeah, yeah. No, those guys are great. I mean, lifesavers. No, no, because I. Yeah, I loved it, and I loved the. I loved what you had to say about um, uh, what was it exactly? Uh, refugees being a medical refugee, essentially, not a medical yeah. tourist, being a medical refugee. Um, which I, I never thought I, I'd have to live my values so chillingly and explicitly, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. The there's nothing well, so I mean, expensive as that which comes for free. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, as I've said to people, I said you. It's not free. You just you simply don't know what it costs. I mean, that's that's the real problem. But um, so we're we're looking at uh, Liberty now, and then uh, right now, I think we're um, we may we're in the very final stages. We may be bringing up uh, Ron Paul for that event. Uh, for those of you who are interested in the Paul, you know Ron Paul and his message, uh, and it just so happens that Peter Schiff is going to be in town on the same day. So we may be able to get uh, Peter Schiff out to either Liberty Now or we'll be running a separate event uh, with Peter Schiff. And of course, you it's uh, tough, though, you know, try, trying to get Peter up in front of a crowd. I mean, he's so shy that uh, <laughs> it's it's not it's not easy, man. You might need some handlers and some people with some pretty heavy horse tranquilizers. But go on. Oh, yeah, for sure. So so we're looking at that. Uh, so we're doing we're doing all that. Uh, so that's going to be October 26th. The website is libertynow.ca. Uh, and that's going to be held on the University of Toronto campus um, downtown. We had a Victoria College last year, um, so we might be doing it again at that location. Uh, and then the next weekend after that, we've got the uh, Toronto Austrian Scholars Conference. Um, now I don't know if you, I don't know if you made, it, I don't think you made it out to it last year, but uh, this sort of is, is twinned up with what's going down in the United States. Uh, no, I'd like to come and watch. Uh, uh, I I love me some Austrian economists in the in, in the morning. They smell like victory. Yeah, yeah, so no, it's excellent. We had a, we had a very good turnout last year. We had, we almost had enough papers, um, and you know we all these tenured profs. I don't know what to do with them, but um, you know trying to get them. It's like pulling teeth to get them to submit stuff, right? You know they, they don't have to work anymore. Just kidding, guys. Please come <laughs> to my conference. But uh, quite the salesman. But uh, no, we had a great time. Uh, we had we had papers. We had a guy fly up from uh, from the uh, Caribbean. We had a couple Americans come up. Uh, this we had Joe wait, Salerno. Wait, guy, guy leaves Caribbean in October to come to Canada. Yeah. Well, yes, he was. I, 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 I don't yeah. know that he's that smart, but anyway, go on. Yeah. So, uh, but this year we're going to be having um, what's his name, uh, Dave Howden, who is uh, originally a Canadian. He lives in Spain right now, and he teaches at the University of Saint Louis Madrid campus. And so he's going to be here 
keynoting. Uh, he's, and also, tween wait, wait, that. Effect. Actually, no, just if he leaves Spain, doesn't it mean that nobody's working in Spain? Doesn't he have the last job in Spain? So that will change the numbers considerably. I just really wanted to point that out. <laughs> Come well, back soon. We need an economy. Uh, incidentally, incidentally, of course, uh, a large portion of the damage in Spain, um, in addition to the, because they had a massive housing bubble, just like the United States did. But in one of the other things that really trashed the Spanish economy um, was their massive uh, malinvestment into windmills and solar panels. I don't know yeah. if you know about that, but uh, but they they just ravaged their economy, um, malinvesting these things and helpful to the environment killed lots of condors and eagles so you know those top predators that are supposed to manage all the i mean it's great they're they're just killing condors and eagles left and right nobody's working so all those people see here you go Stefan. all those people they're not working so they're not consuming see it's it's got this crazy no, no, logic but, but what is interesting is that out. i imagine that there's a fair number of we're really poor tent cities emerging at the base <laughs> of these structures so that when the manna from heaven eagle bodies fall into the pot, you know, you already have dinner. So, yay. Well, and, Progress. and perfectly, well, yes, exactly. So they would fall into the pot and as well to be perfectly sustainable, what they're doing is they're detaching these windmills from the grid and pulling their electricity right there. So essentially each household <laughs> will now, each Spanish household will be assigned its own uh, own windmill that they can live below. You see this? I think this don't is you, don't you feel nostalgic, Redmond, for the days when Fight Club was like fiction? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I just I really missed that. I really missed that. Okay, yeah. so we'll we'll put a link to the website. It's October twenty sixth. Yeah. Uh, I'll be speaking. There'll be some great. And I, you know, I like to stay for dinner. I like to chat. Uh, so I'm not yeah. just going to be sort of bungeeing in and bungeeing out. And you will yeah, be leading yeah. us, uh, I guess we've got karaoke hosts for later in the evening, and I believe Absolutely. you do a pretty mean version of Britney Spears, um, not yet, a, not a girl, not yet a woman, if I remember rightly. <laughs> so uh, obviously we'll be expecting well, the full yeah. outfit, not just the song. It's a, it really well, needs to be a committed performance. Yeah, well, give, me, give me my line of work. I like to do, you know, Bon Jovi, living on a prayer is essentially. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. Um, it's great to chat with you again. Um, let's make sure, sure we get people out to this event. Is it going to cost? Yeah, What's it going to cost people to come and uh, get illumination? Well, here's the thing. We, we got this weird situation. Last year, we charged, I think, about 20 bucks to, uh, or so, um, or 25 but we included lunch. But the problem with that is that we couldn't account for people buying tickets at the door. So we may not do lunch this year. So it may be a lot cheaper, but you got to bring your own ah. lunch. So, but I think right. it will okay. work out. Okay, man. Good. So basically, so, uh, what we so, can expect yeah. is a great, uh, great set of speeches and cannibalism. Uh, so yes. for the people who forget their own lunches, I will actually arrive in a full Kevlar suit, uh, just in case anybody wants to take a bite out of me. Um, well, uh, you, you know, know who I don't want to. So cannibalism. You know, it's very eco-friendly. Very eco-friendly. People don't understand. You and know, no matter uh, how. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Think about it. We we eliminate eliminate that wasteful use of land. There'd be no coffins being made. Uh, we could grind the bones up. <laughs> I, th I think we've hit upon something, Seven. Uh, Actually, I think I'd just try and be like an owl and consume the whole person and just spit up the bones in a big pile <laughs> later. Uh, because I've, I really feel people would pay for that YouTube video. All right, well, listen, just so, so we don't so end okay, up listen. completely destroying any intellectual credibility we have with yeah, ridiculous yeah. So ten, jokes. Like I said, so yeah, so it'll, it'll either, it'll probably be around 20 bucks, but it's a full day of, of great talks, great people. You're helping to 
support the support everything we do and uh yeah donate to you um uh, i i'm a, i'm mises canada is a uh, is a government suckling uh registered charity so you'll get some tax money back if you donate to us and uh, yeah let's do this again soon uh, uh Stephen. yeah i'm gonna see you in october i'm freedomainradio.com thanks again redmond take care thank you okay bye